0: This is Michael Schenker from Scorbins here of all MSG and Temple of Rock. You're listening to Focus on Metal.
1: Hey, metalheads. Scott Thompson here welcoming you to your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. I'm pretty excited about the show this week. In fact, I'm pretty excited about this week in general because for Richie and myself, this week will be a doubleheader of Michael Shanker goodness. Once again, we have Michael Shanker on the show this week talking all about the brand new Michael Shanker Fest release, Resurrection. And then on Friday night, Richie and I will be attending Shanker Fest down in Boston, and this time, as far as the Shanker chat goes, it's, uh, it this one went to Richie. I was unable to uh, get uh, back to people in time to get Michael Shanker hooked up to talk to me, so Richie took the ball and ran with it. So uh, hey, you know, share the share the wealth, right? And also this week, yeah, we'll be chatting with Chuck Garrick from Bisto Blanco. Got their brand new release from Rat Pack Records out. It's called live from berlin so richie was able to chat with chuck about uh pisto blanco the album little alice cooper chat as well which was very cool so that's what we got in store for you this week shanker and garrick in fact we got so much to talk about that uh, no track of the week this week we're going right into the talk so first up this week of course michael shanker as we look forward to the brand new michael shanker fest album resurrection got doogie white on here graham bonnet gary barden And, of course, our buddy Robin McCauley that we're uh, hoping to chat with when we uh, head down to the show on Friday night. So a uh, very cool chat that uh, Richie had with Michael. I also like to uh, just say that if you head up to YouTube and watch the official videos for this, Michael Voss is the guy who produced the album. And in one of the two videos that's up on YouTube, really quickly at the beginning of it, you can see that uh, the band is actually in Michael Voss's famous swimming pool studio, just for a, a brief bit of the shot. Very cool thing that uh, Michael Voss has, and I was fortunate enough that when I talked to Michael a few years back he actually gave me a little video tour over skype of the whole studio so it was cool to kind of see that flash by in the video but anyways why don't we get right into a little musical sample off of the new shanker fest album resurrection and from there we're going to slide right into richie's chat with the one the only the legendary michael shanker
2: Michael? Yes. Michael Hi. King. Hi, Michael. It's Richie here from Focus on Metal. Hello, Richie. How are you? I'm very good. Are you in, you're you in the UK? Yeah. So how is the press going so far for the record? Going well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except for today.
0: Yesterday I did 11. Um, <laughs> it was like a marathon. <laughs> uh, a bang, bang, bang. But today, the first one um, had a problem. The second one, I guess, doesn't know how to die in the UK. And you're the
2: third one. Okay. All right. Well, I got through to you, so I'm able to dial. <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we'll just get in. We'll, we'll just get into it, Michael. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. I, I'm I'm curious now. You're getting ready to go on the road to promote the Resurrection record. Uh, how many guitars do you normally bring with you?
0: Uh, I think it's. Um, I think I'm playing five at the moment on stage and and i take one with me as i travel
2: okay and are you somebody that gets very attached to specific guitars like you do collect them
0: (laughs) not anymore i i've become a very flexible man (laughs) (laughs) Um, i used to have i used to have just one guitar and a spare guitar and that was it but you know since i since since i've been with dean and we made so many guitars, and I started to, you know, uh, uh, use many guitars on stage. And, and you know, and all the guitars that have been built for me, they are all great. And so I, I have become very, very flexible in comparison to how it used to be. And because I've got so many guitars now, but uh, there's a certain amount of guitars I play at the moment. I think it's about five five guitars, and uh, that's what I'm using on stage. Plus one guitar I travel
2: with. Okay. And what about an acoustic guitar? Do you have have a favorite of one of those?
0: No, I don't, you know, I'm sick and tired of acoustic guitar. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I did, I did so many acoustic instrumentals and, and I, you know, I guess it's when you eat your favorite sweet or something and you eat too much of it. You can't, you can't, you don't want it anymore for the next seven years. Okay. I I think for, for me, for me, it's, you know, the, the the it's rock for me at this point in time. I I just want to play rock, It's snappy, fast, energetic, melodic, etc.
2: Yeah, it, it's a it's a little bit unusual though, Michael. You have to admit because a lot of people when they get older they want to get quieter when it comes to the music. You're going the <laughs> other way.
0: Yeah, I'm going the other way. <laughs> hopefully, I take them with. Hopefully, I take them with me. Okay,
2: okay. So you got Robin, Gary, Graham, and Doogie on this. And the one thing that stands out to me with the four of them, like, because I'm from Ireland, all the singers are they're all from Ireland and and Great Britain. Was was that deliberate when you were picking them?
0: Oh, I didn't go by countries. I never go by countries. I just go by who's available, who hurt who who heard, then I'm looking. Yeah, <laughs> and and then and then whoever whoever contacts uh, me and and and. Uh, and, and I like the boys, you know, um, that's how I found them. I mean, Gary Barton, basically, you know, was, um, he, he was the part of, you know, in, ten, in 78, when I was 23 years old, I I finished the uh, Strangers in the Night album and uh, and, and, and helped the Scorpions and open, uh, with the love track album and opened the doors for America for them. And at that point, I I had experienced fame and um, success to retire and that's really when I was um, asking myself, do I want to stay up there in fame and and success, or do I start, do I want to start a new chapter um, and and experiment with music and 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 get more, you know, uh, focus a bit more on life itself, and so I made the decision that I wanted to that I would rather, you know, start a new chapter, the second chapter, I call it, and, and the black and white guitar marks that, and started, you know, getting things out of my system, like acoustic instrumentals, electric instrumentals, and all sorts of things, all, all sorts of crazy things that I wanted to do, that I, um, you know, uh, that what I wanted to do, but because Peter Mensch, who uh, was managing atBC at the time, and now Metallica, um, he was already waiting for me and sent me straight back to Aerosmith. And so it wasn't that simple to drop out like I wanted. It took another 10 years and that was the period. I purposely looked for an unknown singer and that was Gary Barden, you know. to I mean, I made the right step in the... I made the one um, you know one step in the right direction which, which was to create my own band, the Michael Singer Group. And so I was able to, you know, do things in my own place uh, I looked purposely for an unknown singer so that things would be not so much under pressure and and stressful and stuff like that. I just wanted to, to have fun, you know, with it being an artist and an experiment. And so that's what I did. uh, Basically, you know, I create, I, I made my musical contribution in the seventies unconsciously for the, uh, for the eighties, basically. And then in the eighties, um, and that, that's, that was my time. That, that was my assignment, I, I feel, when I look back today. And, uh, and uh, you know, and I, I actually never wanted to be famous or, or anything. I just was having so much fun playing guitar. The, the, the success and fame came by itself. I developed basically from lonesome Crow phenomenon to force it to more heavy packing lights out, um, um, uh, obsession and strangers in the night, and then a lust drive. And that was my development and, and that was the period and that influenced, you know, a few generations and many guitar players. And I stopped listening to music when I was 17 and I stopped copying people when I was 17. So my focus point was from that point on, um, the, uh, uh, you know, first of all, the fascination with the single string and the art of lead guitar with pure self-expression. That, that's my focus point. And, uh, and so by the time I reached the, the, the Strangers in the Night and, and I knew what fame and success feels like, you know, I I was able to make a a, a a decision without having to wonder if I'm missing something because I knew what it was like up there. So I was actually very, very confident to, you know, uh, um, we stepped out of the line. Like I think my part was done. Today I feel like you know I was there in the beginning and I will be there in the end. And the middle years was all about you know uh, learning of, about life and uh, and doing crazy things with a guitar that that no commercial touring band would have ever wanted me to be part of you know because I would have been I would have been a disaster for them because I. I did do some crazy things, but that really started in the early 90s when I moved to Arizona. That's when I really dropped out of the scene and, you know, people hardly knew, I, I, other than my hardcore friends, what I was up to. But, you know, those 10 years from when I started the Michael Schenker Group, I went through Gary Barton, fantastic singer, fantastic voice, um, really nice guy, and uh, very warm by Plato and very fearful. Uh, um, uh, vocal and mid-range, you know, fantastic. I love his vocal. And uh, and so, we, you know, we did stuff together. And then I, I was living at Peter dimensions at the time while he was managing APDC for the next two years. And, uh, and then he wanted, you know, to step up. He wanted to, me to have a, a, another singer, a better a known singer or whatever. So he suggested David Cannadale. And then Cannadale wanted me to join Whitesnake and... And I said, why doesn't Carter join MSG then, you know? And mm-hmm. so not, neither one happened, of course. And then Crane Bonnet was available. And I said, well, you know, let's take Crane Bonnet if you want an, a different singer. And uh, and so, you know, that that became a solter part with Chris Glenn and Beth McKenna, the original MSG rhythm section um, after Posey Powell. And so... You know, and and we did the the, the album with Graham Bonnet and then of course Graham only spent fifteen minutes on stage with us and uh and Bristler's Records never promoted the album, they were moving off it. So it just became like a musician's favorite, but it never it never got anywhere on the, on the on the on the on the uh other level, you know. And so and uh you know, and then Gary came back, we did another album and then you know, um, and then things were just falling apart. Chris left overnight in New York just before the show uh, in New York, and uh, and we played with other bass player and so on. And and then I thought, you know, it's time to do something else. And and then I had to. And then I I, I had an idea. Um, you know, let's let's find the singer with, with a great voice uh, again, like an unknown guy who. I could share responsibility uh, 50-50. i never done that before, and so that was what we call it, and that lasted until 91, um, and then we did an acoustic, uh, an acoustic, uh, we were with Left Tech Management, the third album with Piltz, Jack and uh, James Kotak. Um, it became something completely different. It was controlled by Left Tech Management, which was also our record company, which was Conflict of Interest, and and I just felt like, oh, this, I, 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 you know, I, I had enough of this. And uh, and we were we were just mixing a a, a record, uh, an acoustic record. And Robin had different idea how to mix that. And so I decided, you know, I I I, I love at that point I love acoustic guitar, and uh, I, I I do it my way. And, and and I just decided to 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 split completely from the from the scene and. And, and did this uh, you know started writing a thank you album um, to say thanks to my friends and and from there on i did all sorts of things i i i, I in 93 i traveled with the scorpions I helped in America in, in, in japan i became my own manager and uh, and i took whatever i wanted and uh, i got an and uh, the um, and the mid, uh, the, the, mid, mid uh, the east rocks uh, i did with the scorpions and then i at the same time UFO and, and Phil Maup, he was completely finished uh, health-wise and, and destroyed UFO completely and asked me to review a uh, UFO. And I said only if he gives me 50% of the name to make sure he doesn't abuse it again. And then at the same time, that was all happening in 93. And then at the same time, he asked me to join them. And so and at the same time, I was getting a, a, record, a record deal, a really big one from Japan for MSG, and I turned that into a UFO uh, deal and so that's how we managed to, to record Walk on Water with all the original members, it was fantastic Phil was getting well and, and happy and everybody was happy and we started touring and I had certain conditions to sell the record on the road and so on and uh, after three months Phil you know, didn't like anymore what he um, committed to yeah. and, uh, and he broke his commitment and then we broke up, and then we got back together again. And then, you know, we started doing stupid things like which I always said, "Don't do it." Um, and well, you know, don't do UFO unless it's the original chemistry, you know, uh, which includes your uh, I mean, not with a, with a different drummer or a different, different, different. That it has to be the original chemistry, and it has to be with the proper record company and properly done. If you don't want to, you know, sell the record on the road, you know, but they. Went for less than that. And and so, as a consequence, with Covenant and and, uh, Sharks, you know, it it went, uh, you know, not that well. It was different, Um, like it always happens. If you take two, uh, one or two or three people, you know, members out, it's just one. If you just take one out, um, the chemistry is already disturbed. So, you know, and then in 2002, I basically had enough, and and, uh, Phil called me and said, Michael, I need to work. I need the name. Like I said, you can have the name for free. And, you know, take it and enjoy your life. And that was it. Okay. If
3: you open the book, turn the page, take a look, find the truth right between the lines. Read the story in one, how it all just begun. Well, admit, it's one of a kind. Give him protection with love and affection, standing with honor and pride. Every now, every then will be always the same. But to follow, walk a fine line.
2: Robin Robin McCauley on I've had him on a couple of times and I I asked him about all of the singers and one of the questions I asked him was uh, were you surprised that you ended up working with Michael again yourself because sometimes when these things the doors close they never reopen and he said not really but he said getting all of the singers back definitely surprised him did it surprise you that they all said yes because one or two of them might have just said no
0: um, I was not even thinking about that, you know, because somehow, um, I, I just had an idea, you know, I, I said to myself, you know, after, after I suggested a break with Temple of Rock, because we have been touring for four years and making four albums. And, uh, I was saying to myself, you know, Michael, this is the third part of your life, you know, you're celebrating. And I mean, you haven't done that anything with the singers for so long. I mean, in 2008, something happened to me that was amazing. All of a sudden, I had the urge wanting to be on stage. I have always been stage fright. All of a sudden, it was completely gone. I wanted to be on stage. So I took that as a sign, and, and that marks my, my third chapter, you know? And mm-hmm. so uh, from that moment on, I decided, okay, let's do it. I mean, I'm going to play now, celebrating, and play um, Mike Schenker's most popular music, you know? Uh, um, and that was it. And so, um, you know, most of the, most of that I was doing with doing Roman Francis and Wayne Finley with Temple of Rock. And then, when we took a break with Temple of Rock, then I realized, you know, that it is time for me. Like, you know, like bands, you'd stay together for 40 years, they put all the energy in there, they create a brand name, and everything is focused in one direction. By, for me, it was by, because I couldn't keep people on retainer in my uh, second part of my life when I experimented. And so every time I wanted to make a new album, if the rest of the guys weren't available anymore, I had to look for new people. And so that's how I always ended up with different lineups. And uh, and so uh, um, I thought if I could, you know, all the original singers, at least from the 80s, um, you know I, I I can you know put a lot of my I can put my you know like my I can gather all my energy from those different lineups with the people I've written the songs with and perform original and and basically put everything in a in the center as if I have one band you know so that yeah. was the idea and you know and the funny thing was <laughs> when we when I asked the singers, they, they, it was almost like they were waiting for the phone call. You know, it was amazing. Yeah. And uh, and and then I I you know and it was also very logical and easy to put the the musicians together because Chris Glenn and Ted McKenna were the original guys. You know, anyway, and they were the original guys behind uh, Gary. You know, after Colby, that uh, those and then um, uh, behind uh, uh, Grant Monet. And so, and then a very unique twist came to mind, which was Steve Mann, who actually wrote anytime with Robin, and he is a fantastic musician, keyboard player, a guitar guitarist keyboard player, and so he's connected to Robin McCauley, So we had a fantastic a combination of of a, 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 it couldn't have been better, you know, of the eighties, and so and that was the beginning, and then. We started playing, you know, Sweden work. We took it very slow. I mean, everything happened, nothing, no pressure. Everything happened, you know, very step by step and uh, from one thing to another until we all of a sudden ended up making a DVD that then, for the first time worldwide, was uh, people were able worldwide to see the potential, the full potential of this uh, undertaking uh, rather than looking to the iPhone and YouTube. And so, and that's when the when that's when I said to myself, okay, what's next? Michael Schenker fest in the studio. I thought that was funny by, you know, a fest in the studio like party, you know, with big, with feast and a big, big, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, um, food all over the place and, and drinks and, and mm-hmm. girls and having a party in the yeah. Michael Schenker fest in the studio with a control room in the background. But it it all turned out differently it became The Last Supper, you know? It, it's unbelievable. It, it really, it, it churned. I mean, that's what I wanted. But then Jogi wrote the song, Take Me to the Church, and then uh, Michael Frost w- wrote Last Supper, then the record company, I got uh, a, from the art department, I got a picture that looked like The Last Supper with Jesus Christ and His Disciples, and I went, like, uh, Michael schenker the student, the way I saw it, doesn't fit anymore. I have to think of a new title. And so... I look at my life and I realized, you know, uh, you know, it's actually what's going on here. It's resurrection, you know. Everybody is back. Everybody is, is, is coming, you know, is up again.
3: <laughs> yeah. And
0: so, and then I looked at my instrumental with, with own no name and I thought, well, I might as well call that salvation and we are complete.
2: <laughs> yeah. Now, Michael, whose decision was it to this, to to pick the singers that picked on, that sang on each of the tracks and, and to get to the tracks that all the singers picked on. Were you involved heavily in that, or did you leave Michael Vaughn to decide?
0: First of of all, I'm the co-producer, and uh, I get the ball rolling in the first place. And and my suggestion that I said to Michael Vaughn, you know, we should try to have at least two or three uh, 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 songs with all singers sing together. Um, you know, otherwise it's going to be too clinical, just like three songs each, it, it's just too clinical, there is nothing, no connection, you know, uh, and so, and when he heard that, <laughs> I think he started secretly writing under the table, you know, he was kind of, every time, you know, when I came into the studio, I had my, my you know, I bought 20 songs that I had uh, to offer, um, I think we put down about, uh, actually 12 uh, out of the the 20, and, and so um, as I was putting out the second song, the next uh, the, the music, the next morning I came to the studio and Michael said, hey Michael, I put something together, uh, a melody and a, and the um, uh, lyrics, you know, have a listen. I said, Michael, this is fantastic. How did you do this? This is so fantastic. This is perfect for all the singers to sing, you know. And I will tell you one thing, Michael thought, and and he, he did the same thing with Last Supper, and and he helped Graham him out, and so he was involved in five songs. So you know, he, he was at because He was going the X M I. But Michael thought he is actually an, a, a Michael Shanka fan, a Steve fan, a Gary Bonds fan, a you know Brian Bonnet fan, Gordon of the fan. He's an 80s fan. So so he was the best. Guy for the job, you know, and he said to me, "And that's the best thing he's ever done." And, and 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 you know, that's how that's how much fun it was, and 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 the musicians, and everything, you know, how well everything worked. But it was also a lot of work, you know. I mean, Michael had to go all over the place, and uh, but at the end of the day, it was much more fun than work. And so, because Michael, you know, he started to. To um, he he actually he was starting to do things like secretly I didn't know that he was going to be that much involved you know I I thought that everybody was going to write their own lyrics and stuff like that That, there was no discussion about Michael being involved in the writing process at all period you know I mean that was not the idea but I'm glad today that he did because you know because he is a fan of all three singers in the whole era of the 80s and he understands MSG so he actually had the ability to make it work with all the singers sing together. And we, we managed at least two songs, you know, and then and then an unexpected thing happened, of course, on top of it, which made it even more colorful and more connected in a in a really nice way. That we were actually sharing uh, uh, Becky Bolts with different uh, uh, combinations, you know, that again gives the and 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 an additional color or different colors even on top of it because you you get different chemistries out of that you know yeah and so it, it's just really really brilliant the way everything uh, uh you know can move forward but no force and, and 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 step by step and 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 just everything fall into place and it's just really good
2: yeah now michael now that you're celebrating like your career but you've got the the MSG and singers did you ever feel like going out and just doing the MSG songs in in a set list and not doing any of the UFO stuff at all
0: no because it's the most popular music of Michael Schenker and uh and that's what it's about and so uh, that's number 1 the number 2 is we are all celebrating everybody's celebrating their part but i'm not going to let leave out my energy that i have put you know i make my musical contribution in the in the um in the 70s unconsciously um you know that uh, impacted many generations i became a trend maker. i i I, I, you know, because I stayed away from music and stopped listening to music, I created my own style, which, you know, influenced a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so that energy that I put in in the first part of my life, you know, you cannot forget that. That's my development, you know. That took eight years, from long-term all the way to long to uh, love drive. And uh, and if you celebrate, you know, at this point in time, the third part of my life, why should I leave out my that particular important era? But, you know, having said that, this is 2018. Uh, it has been 40 years since I recorded Strangers in the Night with UFO. And so, you know, you never know. Maybe it's a rock pop starts, you know, once, you know, uh, and joins the Michael Center Fest sometimes and sings a couple of UFO songs. And then maybe in you know, 2019 is 50 years of, of uh, the tele- uh, 50th anniversary of recording for Klaus Meiner and myself. I wrote the songs. Um, when I was 15, in Search of Peace of Mind, which was the ever-first um, written song of mine, and we goes together, and uh, unfortunately, it somehow got credited to all the scorpions. But who knows, maybe Klaus joins, you know, sometimes, uh, and sings mm-hmm. that song with me or another one. So, you know, we can we can actually even push this in the future to the ultimate Michael Schenker Fest. You know, that's a possibility. It's not a must, but, you know, it's just a, a, a possibility.
2: Yeah, I'm sure that a lot of fans would love to see that. If you got all the, everyone, everybody up there that has sang on your career, that'd be, yeah. that'd be very yeah. special. It would,
0: yeah, it would make sense
2: too. Yeah, and just the last, one more question before I leave you go, Michael. When, when it's all said and done and your career is over, would you rather be remembered as a great guitar player or a great songwriter?
0: Spirit on a mission, spreading the joy of music from a place of pure self-expression.
2: So the songwriter, obviously. You want to be remembered for the song?
0: No, no, no. That doesn't mean that. It okay. doesn't mean that. And, and, and let me answer that question more directly then. Okay. Uh, my, focus, my focus is, my fascination is the single string and the focus is the art of lead guitar with pure self-expression, All right. and I fell in, and I fell in love with rapids and the and the black Sabbath and that kind of music, the you know, more metal, the harder music. Mm-hmm. I use that as a screen to paint my art of lead guitar with pure self-expression on it. So basically, that's where my focus is, and being you know, um, fascinated with a single string and and um, fascinated with how to put notes together and make them sound good. Uh, you know, one follows the next, follows the next. It's that is basically a form of songwriting on top of it. So songwriting goes with it because, you know, the piece of music that starts in holiday um, the last five album on holiday, the the, the introduction. Um, that's I I wrote that. Okay, and so it's a single string thing. The 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 melody is on calls to calls on Love try I wrote I wrote those melodies. So I'm equally. It's it's connected to, uh, in my case. The songwriting and the art of lead guitar is together is weak guitar playing and songwriting is combined because the the inter- the intro to um, holiday is a single string you understand yes but it's a, it's a melody that lasts for 45 seconds and sets up the song and so it's songwriting so it's all combined it's both equally important
2: you know what Michael that's a great answer. Because every, every guitar player I, I ask, they nearly all say songwriting. They never say they want to be remembered as a great guitar player. They've never combined the two the way you have there.
0: Yeah. And, and, and if you do write as many melodies as I have in the past, you know, instrumentally-wise, and, uh, you know, the, the the middle solo of Try Me and so on, uh, it's all written stuff. They, they are all written, written instrument, instrumental pieces that were written first, and then Phil Mock said, "Oh, I like this," and then we used it as a as a middle piece. So basically, that song was written as an instrumental and became later try me. Uh, um, I can't remember if that is that, the, is that the title, yeah, try me. Take me for a little while till it's over and so on. And mm-hmm. so and it happened with quite a bit, you know, Doctor Doctor, mm-hmm. uh, the, the 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 instrumental part. That was the first part of the song.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: I wrote... You know, so I write lead guitar. I lo- I, I write melodies that become um, the, ma- the main focus of the attraction, inspires the singer uh, to strip away the lead guitar and just leave the naked chords behind that uh, uh, worked out a piece uh, of, of, of single strings. And then the singer puts his... Uh, in Phil's case, he puts his vocals to it, and then we put back the instrumental over the same chord, you know, the the single notes, uh, yeah. which, you know, and, and then it becomes the solo. And so it's kind of it really starts as an instrumental, and uh, and then the instrumental becomes the solo uh, in many cases, like "Fly Me," and quite a few actually on the UFO on the UFO's uh, uh, albums.
2: Yeah. Well, Michael, there's probably someone else waiting to call, so I'm going to wrap this up. And um, I'm going to the gig in Boston on the 9th of March, so I'm really looking forward to seeing you play all this stuff live. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, Michael, have a good rest of the day, and I'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks. Okay, Okay, Michael,
0: take care.
4: Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Chuck Garrett from Bisto Blanco, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Richie, how are you?
2: I'm good. I'm good. Is it good morning where you are, or what, what is it?
4: It's a real good morning. Yeah, it's 11 o'clock here a.m. So uh, here in Nashville, it's, it's nice. Where are you at?
2: I am just outside of Boston. Oh, Okay, so not so nice, I guess. The it's, weather's uh, a little colder there, I assume. It's about 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah, I got about 50 here in Nashville. I just got, I just literally just walked in from taking the dog out for a walk and
0: yeah, just getting some
4: fresh air. It's been it's been brutal here lately, man. So yeah,
2: I I, I work on a 160 acre farm, so I've been outside since seven o'clock this morning. Oh man, <laughs> you're like one of those real men. I like it. <laughs> I, I, I'm an Irish man, so we're well used to the cold.
0: Yeah, I bet.
2: I bet. One of the first questions I've been asking a lot of the guitar players lately is. Uh, how many guitars do you have in your house <laughs> um,
4: i've got i've I've got four six string guitars and I've got about twelve or fifteen bass guitars
2: <laughs> okay and are you somebody who yeah, who collects
4: so, them um not necessarily, no. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a collector, but what I have is definitely of good quality. You know, I have a lot of good vintage, old vintage basses. And, um, you know, I've got a newer, less Paul and a nice ESP clips, a couple of those. And uh, so everything I have is, is of quality. I've got some Music Man basses, things like that. So I'm not necessarily a collector, but I what I have is, is quality.
2: Yeah, and uh, did you ever find any when you're on the road? You go into some music store and you, you like you're like, wow, I just can't believe I found this.
4: Yeah, I mean, I just I just bought this uh, Gibson Les Paul Standard exactly that way, where uh, you know this guy brought it over to the hotel room for us to check out, and I I bought it from him right there on the spot, kind of thing. So you know, every once in a while that happens, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah. I had a lot of opportunities back in the days to collect or purchase instruments, and I wish I would have, obviously, because they would have been worth a lot of money now, but I'm sure everybody has stories like that.
2: Yeah. Have you ever gotten rid of one that you regretted? No, not necessarily. The
4: only one that I picked up back, yeah, there's one, my very first bass ever that I ever learned to play that's probably, to this day, worth about 100 bucks. but I sold it you know, when I was a kid after, because I wanted to, you know, up it to get a nice Fender P-Bass and, um, yeah, I sold that one and it was, uh, it was a Sears Global, something I bought from the Sears catalog, <laughs> believe yeah. it or not.
2: Nice. And
4: it was just a big piece of junk, but it was a like a P-Bass ripoff, but, um, I just wish I had it just for, just for memory's sakes, you know, sentimental value.
2: Yeah, one of the things that you know you hear from a lot of guitar players is you can never have enough guitars. I, I, are you like that as well, or are you like, oh, yeah, I've got enough to write on here. I'm I'm okay.
4: I've got enough to write on, but I definitely believe that is true. I think that guitars, not unlike bass, really add for a lot of different situations. And being a songwriter, and I have produced a little bit as well. Um, It is nice that you get the tone you can get from certain Les Pauls, which versus, you know, a Les Paul versus an SG or something like that, or, you know, a Fender Strat, you know, uh, know, uh, something that just, you know, there's so many different tones you get and so many things you can do with guitar sounds. You know, I have a tendency to believe, like, my 73P bass that I own is just the perfect sounding bass for all situations. I, I do. I get higher a lot for just that particular bass as well, and it's it's good with my pick or my fingers and all types of different situations. And uh, yeah, I think it's just more. You know, it uh, just kind of blends in a lot easier. But with guitars, you know, you, you get you can really hear the frequencies and things like that a lot more. So different sounds, uh, different guitars. So I do believe that for sure.
2: And what sort of care would you have to put into into your basses? Like I, I obviously like I'm I'm talking like the wood and that, like uh, you you have to really keep an eye on that.
0: Um, You know, I just store
4: them properly. I don't really keep too much care. I mean, I'll take them out and make sure they're, you know, if they're not being used, that they once want to set them up and play them. But, you know, for the most part, I just make sure they're stored properly in in a, in a, in a proper storage facility, which I found here in Nashville. So all of my bases are there. And then the guitars I have are, uh, are here at the house.
2: Okay cuz I I don't play an instrument at all so all these are pretty might be fairly dumb questions to you but I figured that out no, no. So yeah, sure So so let's get into the album The Bisto Blanco Life from Berlin it was recorded on the 2016 tour how come it's only coming out now
4: Well it took time for us to get into the studio and after the tour was over uh we were on tour with the Brusi uncles uh, we got, we had a chance to get into the, uh, the studio with our producer, Ryan Green. He went through the, we, we recorded four shows, four nights. So it was just going through each show and finding out which one was the best performance for us. Um, and then it just came down time and everybody had some time to, uh, you know, mix it and, and get it pressed and have enough time for, for interviews in the record company when it, when it felt right for them to release it. So it could have been released a few months ago, uh, which we were kind of hoping for. But due to the pressing of the vinyl and, and things like that, we, needed, we had to push it back a couple more weeks. Yeah. Um, but there's never a better time than the present, you know?
2: True, true. And did you record the Berlin show because you did multiple nights there? Is that the main reason?
4: Well, it just happened to be the best show out of the four that we recorded. There were two nights in Berlin. When we were on tour at the Birthday Uncles, we we did two nights in every venue. Okay. So um, that particular night just happened to vibrate a little bit better than the other three. Um, You know, we just had a a little bit better night, we think, that night. And there was something special about that Berlin show. I I can remember that night, you know, distinctly right now. And I I think that they're... uh, The crowd was really into it. The second night sort of had a little bit more energy. Some of the same people that saw you the night before see you again, so they knew what to expect. They were into it more um, than the other nights. So it just was one of those nights. It just, there was just something different about that particular show than the other three. Not that the other three were bad, but just that one happened to be better.
2: Yeah. How much say do you have in what shows get recorded? Like, would it be like, oh yeah, I've been in that venue before. The sound there is really good. Like, what sort? How does that decision come about?
0: Yeah, that decision basically was just—it was just the luck of the draw. I mean, the uncles
4: were also recording their uh, their live record as well, and so just because the tour was going so well and everybody was getting along so good, uh, there was just a—it was just the the kindness of the of the uh, front of house engineer Michael Mannix, who decided that he just he was going to record our show as just a favor for us, so. We actually, to be honest with you, had no idea that he was doing it. Okay. We didn't know until
2: after the shows were done. You're probably better off that way because you might have been a bit more nervous. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So is the whole show on the CD? The whole show is on the CD, yes. Okay. And was it filmed at all, do you know?
4: Um, I think there might have been some footage, but nothing that was really salvageable for
2: us. Okay, okay. And, like, would you record every show anyway? Uh, on the tour just to listen back to see how the band is performing
4: uh you know i know that's probably a good practice and we, we started doing a little bit more of that um i haven't been doing that in the past but i know that's a good practice something you should do uh um but um no we haven't done that before ever
2: okay and did you have to touch up any of the uh the live recordings at all because you know so things happen that you're not you're not prepared for
4: well, yeah, there are some touch-ups and some things that, you know, you have to kind of fix so, to make it, you know, sound better, easier for the for the mixing engineer and everything. But, I mean, what you hear is what you get. I mean, we, we tried not to fix. Is, is, we tried to fix only as little as possible, you know, and there just needed to be some blending and some some added things in there. But it was very little, very minimal yeah. um, that we needed to do just so we didn't... Uh, so we wanted it to be as live as possible, but we also you know, wanted it to make make sense. And so, when there was something that needed to be removed, we were able to remove it.
2: Yeah, but, but what
4: you hear is what you get. I mean, just to prove it, I mean, I sang the second verse. If you listen to Freak, I actually sang the first verse again in the second verse. I didn't sing the second verse, I, I screwed it up. And we just thought we might as well just leave that because, you know, uh, you'll hear it. <laughs> yeah. You'll know that, it, you know, why would I do that in the studio?
2: I like when bands do that, they, you know, especially with a live album. Just leave the mistake in. Yeah. You don't want it to sound too perfect.
4: Yeah, we try to do that. You'll hear some, you'll hear some rumble from the bass guitar and some, you know, checking of the guitars and things like that. And I, I wanted to leave those in. I thought that it was important to just keep it, giving it the live feel, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. And live albums in general. Now, when you were growing up, what, what were the big live albums for you that influenced you?
4: Well, there were so many. I mean, obviously, Cheap Chick Live with Ludacom is huge. I mean, you know, Kiss Alive 1 and 2 was so great, even though come to find out later that they really worked, you know, live records. But yeah. it still, at the time, it was really great. I think the one that really influenced me the most that I I listened to the most was If You Want Blood by ACDC. I, I love that record, I still do to this day. And um, you know there was a couple things in there that I heard that I knew it was a live show, and I tried to keep those things in our uh, mix as well when we were doing the Beto Blanco live in Berlin record.
2: Yeah, well, where do you see um, live albums now? Because you know you're gonna have people that love live albums. I still love live records, but a lot people, you know,
4: well, I you're listen... gonna get a mixture of fans. I think you could get some people that I've heard I've read some reviews about our record that people are saying they normally don't like live records, but this one they like. Um, I think it just depends on the listener. I mean, I think, honestly, probably li- live records don't do as well as studio records. I think it's mostly for your hardcore fans. But for me, it's a great tool for a young band like ourselves to give people the experience of uh, what it's like to be in the crowd. And when listening and watching Visto Blanco, those, those who have not had a chance to see us live, sort of gives them a front row seat uh, into the uh, into what it's like to be at a, at a Bisto Blanco concert.
2: Yeah, did you ever toy around it's with the my, idea? It's
4: my lesson, it's my 101, it's my lesson in how to participate in a, in a Bisto Blanco show, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. Did um? Did you ever toy around with the idea at all of maybe adding one or two extra studio tracks on it?
4: We did, but we didn't really have time to do that, you know? I, I had a very heavy busy touring schedule this year and. the we did actually tool around with that with that idea, and uh, but it just gives us more material now for this upcoming studio record that we're working on.
2: Okay, okay. I just want to ask you about your your decision to do feed my Frankenstein. I understand on one level why you're doing it because you know you obviously you've got Calico on the band and and you associated with Alice, but on on the other hand, I might say to you that you want to distance yourself from Alice as well. So you don't want to do any of his stuff. You want to keep this band completely separate. Do you you understand what I'm trying to ask you?
4: Yeah, I I totally do. That's a very valid question and valid point. I mean, we definitely thought about that before we had even considered doing the cover. That particular song, we knew we would be able to make... It was important for us to approach whatever cover we were going to do. It was going to be an Alice Cooper song or whatever. We make it sound like it was written by Bisto Blanco. Mm-hmm. So when we started messing with Seat My Frankenstein, because a, a huge part of our fan base is Alex Cooper fans as well. And I thought it would do on this one record, give them the one thing they've been asking for. Because a lot of times it's during the live shows, there are always some people are hoping we do an Alex Cooper song. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to just get up there and just do an Alex Cooper song. It's not good for, it's not right for us to do that. And I think we are trying to distance ourselves. Uh, from that, we're, we're an original band and we want to keep, keep you know, focus on our original material. But when we started messing around with Feed My Frankenstein, uh, Calico was a little apprehensive about it at first. But once we started messing with the arrangement and getting into the studio and finding her place in the song and the way she sounded in the, in the verses, we realized that, hey, man, this, this sounds so different than what the original is. And it does sound original. Uh, It's been very well received. Alice just loved it. He thought it was just really well done. And and it was was a way to kind of give back to the fans that appreciate us through Alice Cooper, uh, give them a little extra twist on one of their favorite artists, and and do right by ourselves by making it sound like it's a Bisto Blanco song.
2: Yeah. How different is it for you to play when you're playing it with Alice to bass and then playing it with Bisto Blanco? And have you ever played it the Bisto Blanco (laughs) way with Alice by mistake?
4: Yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually think a lot about that after we toured so much. Like when we were playing the Bisto tour, we were uh, playing Feed my friend so much. when I went back to play with Alice. It crossed my mind a couple of times because uh, I just realized, man, my head was just stuck in, in in one way of hearing this song, you know. And playing bass obviously is is a little bit easier for me. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm. Uh, Playing guitar and singing in Bisto, and that that's a completely different animal for me. You know, I'm, I'm I've always been and have been still in a bass player, and so uh, learning to be a guitar player and frontman is, is still a challenge, and I love it. It's it's it's, uh, it's fun as an artist to uh, challenge yourself and make yourself better as a player.
2: Yeah, where which market do you think now that you're bigger in? Is is Europe still your big market?
4: I don't know, man. I think we're doing pretty good right now in the states and over in Europe. I mean, we just had a 14 you know, show run over there in December with with Visto and we did really well over there in Europe. And we'll be back in June on, on one of the bigger festivals and, and then do a couple of club runs as well and some other festivals. Uh, but then we're about ready to take off and go do the Monsters of Rock cruise, which is, you know, pretty big, pretty big cruise and it's, it's sold out already and we're doing well there and and we've been able to tour the state. So we're building this wherever. And um I would like to think that um, you know, wherever they want us, we're we're there, man.
2: Yeah. And what about scheduling? It must be difficult to schedule the band.
4: It is. It is. I mean, you know, I gotta schedule it around, you know, Alice and I'm fortunate enough to have guys and gals in the band that understand that. We all have other things to keep us busy. But uh um, we, we we take advantage when we when we have the time.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just want to ask you, Chuck, a um, couple of questions about Ronnie James Dio. Um, mm-hmm. I had Tracy G on the show. I, I don't know whether he ever played or met Tracy. But he. No. I, I asked him, you know, uh, one of the things that about Ronnie was, did he ever bring you to his house? And he said he did, and his house was fabulous. Did you ever get a chance to go to Ronnie's house?
4: Oh, all the time.
2: Can you describe it for me?
4: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's what you think it would be like. I mean, it looked like you were walking into, a, you know, something a bit of an English type of environment, a um, little medieval kind of vibe to it. I mean, I remember when you first walked in, there was a, a night, you know, um, uh, garlic in the front door kind of thing. Ronnie had imported shutters from the outside of his house to these wood shutters to make it look like it was more something that you'd find, uh, you know, in England somewhere. He imported a bar from England as well. He had a pool room where you could shoot pool, and there were antlers all over the walls with old decorated clocks and a huge library. That uh, everything just had a little bit of a vintage throwback feel to sort of uh, to, to to England, you know, and even even the bedrooms and things like that. But you know, it was it was a very beautiful house, and uh, and we spent a lot of time there just messing around, barbecuing, and. Writing music and having parties and just go over there for coffee and whatever. So just watching TV. So it didn't, it was a very comfortable place. And, um, uh, and I'm just happy to say that I, I have those memories with, uh, with Ronnie. I miss him dearly.
2: Yeah. Um, it was Doug Aldridge, uh, is another guy I talked to. And he said, Ronnie liked it. one of the English things he loved to do was like, you just bring it, we go to the pub and have a drink because all the English people yep. did that as well.
4: Yeah, he loved to do that. I mean, I could always find him down at the bar, the hotel rooms, you know, sipping on a beer, and and it was something that I I still I still cherish that every day, man. I try to do that when I'm on the road with Alice, just to because I remember that time so well with him and the band.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just want to ask you a couple of questions about about Alice. Um, after you got to know him for a while, what surprised you about him?
4: I think the thing that surprised me the most about Alex is he's got this amazing ability to of muscle memory. Once he learns to do something, never forgets it. He's got extremely excellent eye hand coordination and and he uh, he once he does something, he'll continually do it that way all the time. So regardless of the show, if it's eighty thousand people or if it's a hundred people, he'll he does the same exact show yeah he's a constant professional and that's one thing i learned from him and from ronnie as well he always gave a hundred percent
2: yeah i was I was going to ask you about Alistair's work ethic because what does he know he's in his what he's in his 70s now isn't he he's gonna
4: be he's gonna be 70 yeah
2: yeah and he's he's not slowing mm-hmm. down
4: no he's not and you know i mean his work et- his work ethic is is uh you know he's always in always in a great mood always having fun during the shows um Never hear him complain. Never, never once complains about the show or the audience or any of that stuff. He's just a very positive gentleman, around. Yeah,
2: because I I watched the um the Hard Gun the movie, and of course he's in that and he's got some of the musicians who's played with him, who you know. Yeah, and um, it just comes across yeah. as a class act.
4: One of the best, if not the best, to work for. To be honest with you.
2: Yeah. Now, now the stage show he does, Alice's stage show. How much movement do you have on stage? Because like, there must be cues for where, you know, you can and can't go at certain times in the set.
4: Yeah, I think the, I think everybody kind of knows their spot. You know, we figure it out as we go. I mean, obviously it's keeps her stage and there's some theatrical bits that we don't want to interfere with as well. Me as a bass player, I seem to kind of lay back a little bit more and, um, you know, uh, I'm not really one of those performers that likes to run around and spin around and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, at the same time, Alice does give us the opportunity to, he wants it to be a rock show. He wants to entertain the fans. So he opens up the stage and, and, uh, he'll interact with us and once we get a bit down and we'll, we'll try to continue to do that so we can, um, you know, make it like it's a show for the audience, even though it may get repetitive for us, Yeah. it's a different night for these people.
2: Yeah, and Chuck, were you a huge Alice Cooper fan when you were growing up? Um,
4: honestly, I mean, I wasn't a huge Alice Cooper fan. I was an Alice Cooper fan. Um, I, I discovered him a little later in my life, to be quite honest with you. Um, but when I when I finally did get into his discography, I, I have become a huge Alice Cooper fan, obviously. I think that there's a lot of material that I was not aware of um, until later in my life.
2: Yeah. And is there any particular song from his back catalog that you know you'd love to like tap him on the shoulder and say, "Can we play this
4: <laughs> all the time?" Yeah, there's a bunch of those. We always we always mess around and we do Looney Tune, or we'll do My Stars, or we do Unfinished Suite, and songs like that. That you know, he we, we always threaten to do, but we never really get a chance to do. It. But there's so many great riffs. There's even stuff that you know from the later albums and, and songs like you know Man of the Year from the Mises, to Cooper, and, and I mean, the guys just have so many great, great songs and great material from the original bands to to the stuff that we've written. Yeah, but We yeah. try to we try to mix it up as much, much as we possibly can.
2: Yeah, so so what sort of schedule do you think Bisto Blanco are going to have this year? Are you going to be doing a lot of dates? Maybe some festivals?
0: Yeah, we're going to do a festival in June. We've got the Metapaloo's Festival with, with the
4: uncles again. Uh, that's going to be June 22nd. We've got some Dates around that as well, so we'll, we'll probably you know follow up with the with club run after that. We've got some other stuff happening. In the States, we got some monsters of rock stuff coming on. We got a bunch of stuff coming up. We'll be announcing.
2: Okay, and what about going going into the studio and maybe doing some new, laying down some new tracks? Any talk about that?
4: Oh yeah, it's already happening. We're finished pretty much with half the record right now.
2: Oh nice. Um,
4: so we're 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 pushing to have that done. Uh, Sooner than later, for, for this year, we, we should be releasing our third studio record.
2: Excellent, excellent. you want to give out all the social media None. sites where people can get in, in touch with you or, or, or the band?
4: Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. You can follow us dot com, Facebook, pistoblanco, Twitter, Instagram, or you can type livefastdieloud.com for anything
2: else. Okay. Well, Chuck, it's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I hope you have a good Thank rest you, of the friend. day.
4: Thank you so much.
2: And the album is the you album do the
4: is same. I to stay warm.
2: The album is really good. Really really good. I love it. Thank you. All right. So, have Don't maybe a, I'll
0: talk to you later.
2: Yep. Yeah. All right, Chuck. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye bye
1: just couldn't resist throwing in just a little sample of uh, how Bisto Blanco does feed my Frankenstein. Anyways, big thanks to Chuck Gara for coming on the show and telling us all about the brand new Live from Berlin release. And uh, last time I checked, there were still bundles available up at Rat Pack Records. So always good stuff up there. T-shirts, CDs, signed stuff. So head that way and uh, get your own Bisto Blanco merch. So big thanks this week. So once again, Chuck Gara coming on the show. As well as Michael Shanker making his third appearance here on Focus on Metal, as we gear up and get ready for release of the brand new Michael Shanker Fest album, Resurrection. I don't can I really call it geared up because it's out, so uh, we can't get much more geared up than that, right? Anyways, Richie and I are definitely looking forward to heading down to Boston. On uh, Friday night, and checking out the show live. Maybe get a little chat in with Robin McCauley if all works out. So, I'm really looking forward to that and hope to see some of our uh, local Focus on Metal listeners in attendance down there as well. So, anyways, thanks for listening and uh, continuing to support Focus on Metal. We love doing the show for you guys, bringing you great stuff every week. And speaking of which, next week the plan right now is to bring you a chat with former sounds writer gary bushel and uh, i know when richie talked about doing the interview he did say that gary had some great aussie stories and he was uh, definitely not exaggerating some really good stuff here kind of calling this uh, almost a karang companion piece that richie did so really good stuff And uh, that will be hopefully coming your way next week. But uh, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant.
3: Uh...